Howdy, everybody. Here we go. It's another BP Movie Journal. we got to catch up on the stuff we watched. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem like there's no urgency here. I feel very urgent. we got to get all this stuff in, and then it's going to be two weeks before the next journal. So oh, try that's not, true. So try not yes. to watch too much. Uh, I'm way ahead of you. I, I will be at a film festival and am planning on watching exactly zero movies at that festival. Awesome. So uh, just going to be just drinking. Jo- oh, absolutely. It's going to be a real drinking <laughs> festival. Just room service and mini bar. That's what it's going to be. That's it. All right. Um, well, I got a ton. Of, no, not a ton, but I have a good amount of stuff. So I guess I'll start. All right. Um, I watched... I've been meaning to, uh, you know, I, you and I are big fans of the film Los Angeles Plays Itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked about recently having seen Tom Anderson's new film, The Thoughts That Once We Had. Yeah. So I saw his 1996 film, Red Hollywood, which I would love for you to watch. Okay. It's about um, communism? It's about the blacklist, or specifically, it's about the films made by the people on the blacklist before they were blacklisted. Okay. And so... This isn't, he's not trying to make the point that like, oh, it was a big, it was a big scare and there no, were no communists in Hollywood. He's saying, no, these people were definitely communists and they had some interesting ideas yeah. and here's how they came across in their films. Um, I like that he's at least acknowledging that rather than act like, oh, these people had no, no affiliation. Like, well, it, a lot of people had right. those. But I mean, if you know anything about Tom Anderson, he's a major leftist himself. So he's yeah, yeah. definitely very sympathetic. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, get him out of here. That's what I said. <laughs> so uh, he basically explores, you know, communist, but more specifically leftist themes in the films of those who were who went on to be blacklisted, mm-hmm. uh, leading up in in the in the forties and fifties, leading up to the the House on American Activities uh, Committee blacklisting them. Yeah, it's 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 more like Los Angeles plays itself than it, than um, the thoughts the ones we had, which I described as being a little more. Uh, abstract and obscurist i think mm-hmm. this is more uh of a video essay it has it's very clear about its points it's broken down into different topics yeah. like is it dry is it uh... uh no it's 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 fun it's not as it's not as glib as los angeles plays itself can be okay. but it is um definitely interesting and it cuts in so yeah it's broken down i, I can't remember there's there's uh i'm trying to think what I, there's a there's a bunch of different um sub subtopics that he mm-hmm. covers but like crime is one of them and sex is one of them and um so it breaks it down into those with narration uh like los angeles plays itself the narration is not by tommy anderson uh, okay. they he hired a person to do the narration which i think is good um and then it cuts in interviews with surviving members of the blacklist from the time from 90 you know okay. the mid 90s uh it's really good so um yeah check it out if you can um, and what's it called again red hollywood Red Hollywood. okay uh what else do you have uh i did see a movie that i forgot about so i've seen two movies and then i watched an entire uh season of television um okay let me do one more actually <clears throat> okay because you only have two and i have four okay oh, i have five um i saw a film uh comes out in a couple of weeks um that i was really excited to see because the cast is phenomenal mm-hmm. it's called welcome to me Okay. Uh, it stars Kristen Wiig, Linda Cardellini, right. James Marsden, Wes Bentley, Joan Cusack, Jennifer Jason Lee, Alan Tudyk, Tim Robbins, Kulap Vilaisak. Okay. Uh, I'm probably even missing uh, missing some people and leaving them out. It's now, a I don't great mean, cast. Now, I don't mean to be mean, but with a couple of exceptions, it's a great cast for 1999. <laughs> 
Do you know what I mean? Like, what look do you at, mean, like Jennifer look, J- Jason Lee and Joan Cusack and Tim Robbins and Wes Bentley? And Wes Bentley. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not saying they're bad. Be- I think they're great actors. I don't mean to say it. Just it's uh, it seemed odd to me as you were listening. I'm like I'm noticing a theme here. Well, it's mostly uh, Kristen Wiig's movie. Uh, it really. I mean, she's the star. Uh, mm-hmm. She plays a mentally ill woman, um, borderline personality disorder, who goes off her meds and very. Uh, coincidentally, right after she goes off her meds, wins $86 million in the lottery. Just sort of like uh, probably the worst thing that you could do to someone who's oh, yeah. in that sort of that sort of state. Um, and she uh, is obsessed with infomercials and Oprah. And okay. she goes to this like cable TV station that runs infomercials and produces infomercials and basically just pays, gives them $15 million dollars. Uh, and says, I want to have my own talk show that I have complete control of. And it's sort of her just airing her uh, paranoia, her ids, uh, but it's all done with a lot of comedy. And that, that is kind of almost the, the problem. Okay. It's not the, I, I don't know. It, ultimately, I can't recommend the movie, even though it has a lot of good jokes in it. And I mentioned a lot of great cast and all that stuff. But ultimately, it seems like it's a pretty boilerplate woman uh, makes, uh, you know, burns a lot of bridges and then has to make amends at the end type okay. of story. And it kind of is just using her mental illness as the tool to tell that story, which yeah. isn't, which isn't overtly like disrespectful. It's not like she's, the movie doesn't make fun of borderline personality disorder or manic depression or any of the things that she's been di- diagnosed mm-hmm. with, but it, but by just using it as an incidental thing, yeah. it does seem kind of disrespectful. David, I've got more things to say about this film. I haven't seen. Okay. <laughs> even the, even your description seems like 1999, an obsession <laughs> with Oprah with infomercials, who cares about infomercials anymore? Yeah, I wonder uh, if it's and and I then if it's a script that's been sitting around for fifteen twenty. Years. And then they just and and in the script it's spe- it specifies Tim Robbins needs to play this role, um, and uh, and even the idea I know this may sound strange, but even the idea of kind of exploiting that sounds too ugly, but like exploiting mental illness as a means to an end. It, to to maybe like spice up a pretty standard type of story, uh-huh. especially in a comedy. Um, somehow that seems very '90s to me. I mean, me myself and Irene and stuff like that. Oh, they, I guess that was early 2000s, or was that '99? Yeah. No, I think that's 2000. Okay, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's just odd. So much about this film seems you get Kristen Wiig out of there, uh-huh. and if you were to if you were to describe this film to me in every possible way, I would say, oh, it's a movie from the '90s. And who would you cast in the Kristen? Who's the 1999 Kristen Wiig? Janine Garofalo. Jane Garofalo, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of, like, Linda Cardellini obviously would have been too young at yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's fun. That's funny. But I, I can't really recommend it. Okay. Uh, All right, so sorry, now, you go ahead. I saw, so the other day, David, Jen and I went to Disneyland, and it was marvelous, of course, um, and we decided to top off the day by heading on over to downtown Disney, going to the AMC, and watching Cinderella. It seemed oh. appropriate, a good way to end the day. Yeah. And uh, David, it's lovely. It's still my favorite movie of 2015. It's an absolute delight. Um, you know, I didn't see Maleficent. Uh, Nor did I. It looked visually great. But then when I he- when I heard like all the m- like modern stuff that they stamped onto it. Now, I, kn- I understand like there's a lot of like feminism in there. And that... Part of me thinks like that sounds great. I like when people 
delve further into like a fairy tale, something that's much more black and white and two dimensional and that kind of thing. I usually like that kind of thing. Um, and I might like it in Maleficent, but I haven't seen it. Um, but there is a certain degree of pleasure in just, they're trying, they're just realizing in live action, they're realizing a fairy tale and that's it. There's not a whole lot of character arc. There's not a whole lot of like adding to the story. It's really just the story. Um, beautifully realized visually. It is the story on the surface, but it also, Mm -hmm. I think, is interested in um, at least under the surface exploring the the metaphors inherent in the story. Oh, sure. Because one of the things I talked about, I don't know if you went back and read my review, but um, the the way that the first dance Mm -hmm. uh, mimics a lot of the feeling and movements of a loss of virginity ah uh, yeah is, I, I got a lot of that in really there. strong and i and i like and there's kind of, there's that kind of stuff all through it yeah and there's also just little kenneth Branagh goofy touches like the painter the portrait painter oh yeah where it's it's rob bryden who they're they're lowering him down and he's like lower lower and i'm on the floor i am literally on the floor and it's that's funny <laughs> like, i enjoy no, i like this vantage point just give me a long brush <laughs> and and then like when the when the goose is turned into the coachman and the first thing he says is i can't drive i'm a goose yeah. uh stuff like so yeah there is there are certain certainly some modern touches both humor uh you know both humorous and uh and otherwise the you know yeah no question about like when he when he puts his arm around her of course such a that doesn't have to be the most vulnerable thing, but for a char- for a character like her, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and it's touches like that that actually take us, cause us to invest more in the character and what she's going through. I liked him a lot. I, I think they're a right to develop the prince character more than in you know the 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 Disney uh, animated film. Um, and I like certain things, certain touches with. Uh, Kate Blanchett's character, like she tells her own story and it turns out she actually did love her husband, her first husband. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that, I find very interesting, but more than anything, as I'm sure you can, as I'm sure uh, you can relate to, I thought it was just absolutely visually stunning. Uh, sure enough, I was like, as I was watching it and just looking at just the, the, the production design and stuff, I thought like, who is a production designer. Well, it's Dante Ferretti, of course, mm-hmm. and everything he touches. One, I, even my least favorite movie of the year right now, Seventh Son. As oh, I was good. watching, I was like, you know, these sets are really good, though. Like, it re- I really get a sense of uh, Dante Ferretti. There it is. <laughs> so, like, even in even in bad movies, he's marvelous. And I thought the I thought the costume design was gorgeous. It's a really it's a film that I was very happy I saw on the big screen on top of everything yeah. else. So it was a very pleasant and pleasurable experience. I liked it a lot. Uh I'm glad that you liked uh, your experience because I saw a movie yesterday that I didn't like. Uh-oh. That I wanted to like. Mm-hmm. I went in knowing as little as possible. All I knew about it was that Jonah Hill and James Franco are co-starring in a movie that's not a comedy. Oh, okay. And this was not a play. I, this was on my list of movies I wanted to see. Yeah. And it, you know what? I, if you're interested in seeing them do a couple of serious roles together and play off one another seriously, they're both great in the movie. Okay. Um as is um Felicity Jones um who plays uh Jonah Hill's wife and um do you know the character actor Robert John Burke name sounds familiar uh, he he's done a lot of TV which is I know him as uh Bart Bass from Gossip Girl and he was also the um the priest in Rescue Me um okay 
uh, he's been in a ton of stuff. Oh, you know who he is? Who's that? He uh, he's RoboCop three. He he took over. Got it. He took over from Peter yeah, Weller. There he is. Yeah. Uh, so he plays the um, detective. What? I feel so bad for him that that is what j- got me. <laughs> oh, I, the first thing I named was Gossip Girl. I don't know how he feels about that, but um, <clears throat> so yeah, he plays a detective. Um, and then uh, uh, James Franco's uh, character's wife's wife in flashbacks because she's been murdered. When mm-hmm. that's the point is played by an actress I recognized right off the bat. Okay, I don't know how far behind you are on Louis. How much of Louis you've uh, seen? I saw half of the episode one, season one. Got so uncomfortable oh. that I had to stop. Okay, so you never watched. Okay, so this is from season two or three. He essentially has a rendezvous with another like single mom from his kids like Mm -hmm. um class like kindergarten class or whatever and it's uh like the least sexy thing in the world and she may uh, like asks him to run down to the corner store and buy blueberries and then like a bunch of completely nonsense like just lotion like whatever Mm -hmm. she needed for i don't know uh tweezers or something like that i can't remember what all it was um but i immediately recognized uh, in true story like oh that's that woman who wanted the blueberries uh, from Dwayne reed or whatever where they don't sell blueberries um anyway uh so the movie itself again they're great the uh, you know visually and orally it's very nice uh, and good but it's just it's just a clunker of a screenplay hmm. it needed it needs a few more passes just to like because that's a big part of the problem is that the performances are so good yeah among the, between the leads that there's a bunch of stuff in the screenplay that doesn't need to be said because it's all there already yeah uh and uh, yeah i just found that um it, it was just too much for me who directed it uh, it's a guy named uh rupert gould um this is his first feature or his first theatrical feature did he also write it uh he co-wrote it okay because that's Uh, because it's weird when you're a writer director and even even a co-writer um there's this weird thing where like i think if if somebody else had directed this script i think he that that person would recognize oh this line is not necessary because Jonah Hill's merely get, like darting his eyes or something like that. This right. line is completely superfluous. But I think when you're a writer director or Clint Eastwood, you're willing to, <laughs> uh, to just go with whatever the script says. Like, Hey, I wrote it. I, uh-huh. I wrote it for a reason. I'm going to leave it in there. And I think you can be a little bit too married to the words. I, that seems to be what, what happened. Um, that's a bummer. But, I think I might still see it because I am interested. At this point, I'm very invested in Jonah Hill's career. Mm-hmm. I loved Moneyball. I loved Wolf of Wall Street. And I like him. The idea of a dramatic... And he's still kind of funny in both of those. He's mm-hmm. very funny in Wolf of Wall Street. But him as a dramatic actor really intrigues me. So I think I might see it nonetheless. Okay. Um, well, luckily for me, my night turned around. Okay. Because I went home and I watched the movie on Hulu+. Plus. All right. That... I don't. I feel like I get the impression is not considered among the top tier of Feder, of uh, Fellini's films, okay. but is among my top tier now, um, and maybe my favorite movie period that I've watched in 2015 so far. Okay, uh, it's called Juliet of the Spirits. Oh, have, okay. you, have you seen it? No, but I've heard of it. It was his first fully color film, and I'd never gotten around to it again because it's not. It doesn't seem like it. It always seems like it's not mentioned in the top tier i've seen mm-hmm. like i've seen all the top tier fellini i think except for satiricon i never saw that one um okay but uh this movie's amazing <laughs> it's 
two and a half hours or whatever of a very simple story where there's a uh, a rich housewife who is sort of um, banally content with her life, uh, but realizes that her husband is having an the affair. The word is banally. I don't think that should... I, I that made is. that up. Oh, okay. Um, um, uh, realizes that her husband is... Or begins to suspect that her husband is having an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically starts going through... Like, she she starts going with her friends to spiritualists or, like, sort of pseudo-psychologists or, like, seance or she goes to an orgy. So she's sort of, like, trying, like, all this new stuff to try and fix her malaise. Because she is yeah. being of the generation she's from and the age she is, it doesn't occur to her that her husband's an asshole. Yeah. She yeah. feels like she's not, if he's cheating, she's not doing something right to making him happy. Or yeah. She's not living up to something. Um, but being, being Fellini, it's a movie that where reality and fantasy or psychosis or whatever mm-hmm. are, are blended, you know? So she's constantly being visited by ghosts from like, uh, the ghost of, or not even, I guess, I guess spirit is the right word, isn't mm-hmm. the title? Cause they're not necessarily ghosts, just like herself as a child or her grandfather or, um, another friend of hers who killed herself when her husband left her. Hmm. Um, uh, and it's, yeah, it's just so Fellini and so beautiful. Uh, and so simple too. I, I think that's something I really like is when, when a movie, um, doesn't actually have a super complex plot, but still manages to get, I think it's more like 220, two hours and 20 minutes of yeah. uh, completely compelling material. That's one of my favorite things. I um, I think you would enjoy Fear of Fear. Okay. Uh, it's a, a Fassbender film. Okay. And uh, it, it's very similar to that. It's basically this woman who is... Who has a husband who's perfectly loving and all that, but he's also kind of set in his ways. He's not, he's not an asshole. Um, he's merely... I don't know, not even stubborn. It's hard to say, just kind of inflexible. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then, uh, but she just, and one day she just goes into a depression kind of, uh, manifested with, through like hot flashes and stuff like that. And she's just trying to figure out what the problem is. And it's just, and then everybody around her is like, just like blaming her and saying like, well, you just need to do this. You just need to do that Mm -hmm. and all that. Now, of course it's also a film kind of about mental illness, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's so interesting to see movies like from the sixties and seventies, like from a, from a, even if a female didn't write and direct it, like front where, with a female protagonist where they're exploring like, well, what does it mean to be a part of a, a society where it is, where something is your fault? Like, um, I was just watching a, a review, uh, on uh, from 1986 of Siskel and Ebert, they were reviewing a film called Desert Bloom, a movie that I that has been lost to time. Um, <laughs> I know nothing about it. It's got, uh, among others, it's got John Voight in it, and there's a and he's uh, and takes place in the 1950s, and he's kind of a drunken asshole and all that. And so at one point, I think he like yells at his daughter, or like maybe even hits her, but I think maybe just yells at her. I don't know. And, uh, and the mom says like, what did you do to make him mad at you? Like, it's just, mm-hmm. there's just this programming thing that says, uh, that he is somehow his, his actions are excusable and you just need to not poke at him, right. you know, and that sort of thing. Like he can't help himself, but you can, you have a responsibility. It's, 
That's that sounds fascinating. And you know, I've actually seen criminally little uh, Fellini. Uh, I saw eight and a half, which I didn't love, and I'm sure I need to see it again. I've seen it twice now. I probably need to see it again too because it's been close to 15 years since I've seen it. Probably, I and, saw it probably um, a few years ago yeah. uh, for the second time. And just I I never really responded to it, and I think that kind of put me off because a lot of people said like, "Oh, that's his best film," and it sh- shows up in like the sight and sound list. And I'm like, "Oh, if that's his best film, then maybe I won't enjoy his other movies." But it sounds like I'll like a lot of his other films. Yeah, you should see La Dolce Vita, yeah, and Knights of Kiberia, yeah, and um, Juliet of the Spirits. Okay, the one I think is maybe a little overrated is Amarcord, which okay. I like, but I also feel like sometimes. This might just be a personal thing because it's so much about his like boyhood recollections mm-hmm. that sometimes it's being from a boy's point of view, it's a little overly sophomoric. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, that's just a personal thing that I don't respond well to that kind of stuff. Um, I don't usually either, but at the same, uh, maybe, yeah, you know, I'm not going to. We've been talking too much about movies we haven't actually seen, or at least <laughs> I haven't seen. Um, so, uh, did you have uh, what's, something else? What's next for you for movies? You've got. Ne- <laughs> <laughs> I forgot until just now. I saw Monkey Kingdom. Oh, I it's weird the stuff that finds its way to me. Like I am the guy who reviews in my own s- sweet time. Apparently, um, the motion comics Marvel from motion Marvel. Comics, yeah, uh, I'm the guy who reviews these Disney nature films. That's been more coincidence, I think. Uh, yeah, again, I mean, I because you've just, done the last th- three. Yeah. Which you one? did, you did I, bears. I, believe, I did chimpanzee, bears, and now monkey, uh, monkey king. But I did African cats. Yeah, which I actually saw as well. I think I also got a, a an invitation to okay. a later screening. And I think one of the reasons that I do and that I do go to these um, is that Jen enjoys a good nature documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's gone with me to all of these. And as I said, like, hey, honey, you ready to go see? Monkey Kingdom, she's like, absolutely. Let's go watch a narrative get forced on some animals. <laughs> so she knows at this yeah. point, she knows my problems with it. And sure enough, Monkey Kingdom is no... You know my problem with it. Is. What's that? Monkeys are creepy. I would have gone to bears if I could have made it. I would have spared yeah, yeah. you. You wouldn't have had to review that. I would have done I couldn't make the screening. Yeah. But chimpanzees and monkeys, if you're willing, take it. God be with you. The cuteness of chimpanzees give them something of a pass. Uh, gorillas, I, I find terrifying somehow. See, I prefer gorillas because at least they're like upfront about being scary. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, if I'm being completely honest, and I have to be, you can't <laughs> lie on a podcast. Um, uh, maybe a, it's entirely possible the reason I find gorillas so frightening certainly they are very large yeah. there is that is probably because planet of the apes and the gorillas were the security guys uh-huh. and they were the ones who were most likely to want to hurt you and punish you and all that and uh and certainly congo where uh-huh. david you are the endangered species now what about baboons well look scary the okay there i don't find them scary which i should because as we all know right. baboons are dangerous exactly um that's an old joke on this show at this point yeah look it up everybody uh but yeah monkey kingdom it is the best i like i think african cats is the best of the bunch um this is probably second um this one is not horrible it's uh it is astounding to me how much they will just force a narrative and they'll just and what they what we wind up doing because it talks about 
how in this group or that I think I think they actually say troop in this troop of uh, of monkeys. There is like a, a a class system. There's like the alpha male, which is not a not uncommon in, in any group of animals. There's the alpha male and then like his three ladies and then their offspring, their direct offspring. And they are in charge. They are the ones, you know, ruling the roost. And then it just goes down, down, down. And then it follows basically this female monkey who's at the very bottom rung of the ladder. And so and it follows her and just and she, you know, gets pregnant, has has her own kid. And then through this weird happenstance, uh, she winds up at the top of the at the top of the food, cha- not food chain. I'm literally I'm talking about animals. I can't use that term um, at the top of the of the of the ladder in that case. Um, and so, OK, that's all well and good. But what gets me is when we put our human values on onto animals like the music that plays anytime it deals with like the alpha male and the and the 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 uh well uh, the highborn i believe they're referred to in okay. the and it's just like like it's ominous music and there's such clear disdain it's like look i get it uh we live in a very specific political time, but at the same time, they're fucking monkeys. There is no one percent in the world of monkeys. They don't use the term, but they have that <laughs> level of disdain. And it's just like, because now it's it's weird because now we're judging. They're monkeys. They're like, they're acting on instinct. They're not thinking this out. Is is the problem that is it is the problem that we think of these as documentaries? If we had a word about some sort of like assembled narrative or whatever these are. If we had a word for what these type of movies are that made it clear that they weren't documentaries, they're real footage assembled into a different story. Well, and from what it sounds like, this is the actual story, but the tone and the, you know, it's, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? And and Jen has to remind me before, as I'm getting angry as we drive home, uh, Jen has to remind me that she's like, these first off, they're, of course, they're always visually gorgeous, mm-hmm. um, and and more than anything, anytime I watch a nature documentary, I always want another documentary about the making of the nature documentary. Like, how are you getting so close to these animals? Because <laughs> some of them are quite lethal. I always think about that too. Like bears, I saw a grizzly man. You get too close to a bear, it doesn't matter that you have a camera because um, yeah. it will murder you and eat you. You know what? I even just said murder. It'll just eat you yeah. like a bear does. I saw a BBC uh, documentary. Uh, just was flipping through channels. I watched a little bit of this. This woman who like lives in uh, Paraguay, and um, there's a shot of her like getting up close with this anaconda that she just happens to find. She's like, oh, oh it's boy. been in a fight here, and like it had some scratches. And she's just like talking about it and standing out there. And the narration is like she gets so close to the anaconda. But I'm like, well, no, there's two people in this situation right now. Yeah, three if there's a sound guy or whatever. Yeah. It, this isn't just this woman. There's. I think the about whole, this with Survivor all the time. You, you must get paid more, right? I have to assume it, so. Like, you're not going from working on, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians to 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 Monkey Kingdom, like at the same pay. It's not like a union rates, right? There must be. I guess it depends on some sort of pay for like hazard pay or whatever. Yes, I think probably yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, so Jen has to remind me like this is a these are beautiful these films and you know, it does get you excited about watching these animals and you just, and she's like, you just need to think like, imagine you were an eight year old kid 
this would get you excited about nature. I remember I, and perhaps you, grew up with zoo books. Do you remember zoo books? I can picture that, yeah. Uh, which, you know, you read and they're really up close pictures of animals and you got excited about it. So I just, I have to look at it like that. But at the same time, and you know what? So when it comes to an actual story, I'm actually, okay, I'm more okay with it looking at it from that, okay. you know, through that. But there's something about the judgment of animals' actions that just bothers me um, because it's just nature, you know, in the same way. Like, if the if the damn Jurassic Park movies <laughs> will never have a dinosaur get shot. Have you noticed that? I, dinosaurs, well, I never saw the third one. Okay, well, I, I don't think, a, I don't recall a dinosaur getting shot. Like, and then, and then even uh, in the second one, when the, when the, uh, was it, I think it's when the two T-Rexes are going after the trailer and stuff to get their, their baby back and uh, ribs. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so and stupid. I'm so That's sorry. Even me. I'm so sorry. That is you. You're rubbing <laughs> off on me, David. Um, but, uh, and then Richard Schiff, he's like, they're just trying to protect their baby and all that sort of thing. And then he gets ripped in half by these two T-Rexes. Now, he might not be so quick to defend them if he knew that. But at the same time, these are films that are basically monster movies. And even they go out of their way to say they're just animals defending, just doing what animals do. Uh-huh. But the but these these actual nature documentaries, they're trying to get you in, to have an appreciation for nature. They'll judge. And judge with such a such not merely a human sensibility but such a right. current sensibility that it just bothered me but i'm still gonna assume that no monkeys get shot like and, eight monkeys okay. get shot by the documentary crew and then they <laughs> but they make it clear like we're doing this for the you know for the film right um but there is you know what there is actually there's something in this film that are that is not in the other movies and i and there it's my favorite part of the movie the monkeys uh get attacked by another troop of monkeys and they are forced off their home, off their, you know, uh, their big rock formation that they call their home. And so as they're looking for places to go, they invade human civilization and they steal stuff from, uh, <laughs> and that's a lot of fun, but it also in that moment, the camera, people, the cameraman have to like break into people's houses alongside the monkeys. It would appear so. Cause I don't know how they got a camera in there. It's like he it's like they basically these monkeys, by the way, ruin a kid's birthday party as the kids are off playing a game. Love it. Eat all their cake and all that. But in that moment, in that moment, I think the reason that I liked it so much is that it reminded because when you're just looking at the kingdom of monkeys, monkey kingdom, one could call it, Mm -hmm. um, then you're able to say like, oh, he's the leader and oh, she's at the bottom, all that. Then when you juxtapose them. With humans, with, you know, which is how we will look at animals. We'll just look at them through our, through our own filter and you see how they interact. You're like, oh yeah, they're just animals. They don't, yeah. undoubtedly animals still have emotions and that sort of thing, but like they're just animals. And it was a nice reminder of that. And it, I found it very refreshing. So, well, that was way more time on Monkey Kingdom I expected to say. Oh boy. Well, I got, I should <laughs> say I've not yet written my, I got to write my review of it. Okay. And, yeah. uh, I think I needed to say all this so I have a better idea of what I am going to write. <laughs> but your, uh, your corny joke back there, uh, reminded me of a corny joke on, uh, Last Man on Earth this week. Oh, okay. Did you watch Last Man on Earth? I'm, I, I haven't watched past episode three. I'm reluctant to. Okay. Well, he, uh, I'm not going to give too many spoilers, um, but there's this part that I la- laughed out loud at when he's, 
full of regret and depression. He's drinking himself into a stupor, talking to himself. Oh, yeah, he's talking to his, like, sports ball things. Mm -hmm. But he's talking to himself. And he says, uh, he's talking about how he blew his opportunity. And he's like, I want, he says, very drunkenly slurring, he goes, I wanted a do-over and I got and I made it a doo doo over. Boom, still got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, Last Man on Earth was again. There were two episodes this week. The second one. Now they could they could reset and just had, go back to the same problems again because they've done that before. Mm-hmm. But the second episode was like instead of you've, we've seen a couple times where Phil acts like an asshole and then sort of comes around at the end of the episode. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, and then it resets the next week. This this was the first time they really made a good case for showing two back-to-back episodes because he, he acts like an asshole in the first episode mm-hmm. and then spends literally the entire second episode paying for it and then coming around and trying to be a better person. Okay. So it could stick this time, finally. Maybe we won't get another... We, we're going to get a second season. Maybe it won't just be, you know, Phil's a shitty person every single episode which has been kind of my problem with the show. So we'll, uh, I'm actually excited to see where the show goes next week. Um, but I didn't even plan on talking about Last Man on Earth. You just reminded me of it with your corny joke. Um, I don't completely remember what my joke was. Oh, well, I I won't, I'm not going to say. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I'll just discover it when I, I'm not listening back to this. Yeah, we'll talk about it off. Mic. All right. Um, but uh, what I wanted Ribs, to talk about. That was yes, it. I yes. got it. Sorry, everybody. I, I'm um, so sorry. The show I wanted to talk about... Uh, was Silicon Valley, which is back. Okay. Um, I'm behind on a lot of TV, so I won't be talking about too much, uh, too many shows. I'm up. Um, I'm doing great. I, I did watch the first episode of Wolf Hall, but two have aired so far. You would love this. I don't even, I've not even heard of it. It's a PBS miniseries. Okay. About, it's, it's similar to the story of the Tudors, okay. except, I mean, it is the story, but it's entirely, the main character is Thomas Cromwell, and he's Ooh. played by Mark Rylance. So oh, that's awesome. okay, yeah. Um, and Damian Lewis plays Henry VIII, mm-hmm. but he's he doesn't even show up in the first episode until 45 minutes in and doesn't even speak out loud until the very end of the first episode. Mm-hmm. So it's not about him at all. Uh, it's about Mark Rylance as Thomas Cromwell and Jonathan Price, J- Jonathan Price plays Cardinal Wolsey. Nice. Uh, so far I'm loving it, but I'm behind. Um, and no, what I wanted to talk about was Silicon Valley, which I think I, I really like the first season. I think this second episode or second season premiere might be better than anything they did in the entire first season. Mm-hmm. It seems to have struck its tone perfectly, which is that it is a real story. We like a serialized story about characters week to week that, you know, the things that happen in one episode definitely continue into the next episode and pass. So it has that foot in reality, but it's also a show that has sort of flights of fancy. And I think sometimes it has had trouble having scenes that are essentially sketches and working it into the main story. This time it did it great throughout the episode. The two, the two big ones that I'll talk about was, uh, so, you know, um, the actor Christopher Evan Welch died during the making of the first season. Um, and they just had in the first season, they just had reasons for him not to be in the second half of the season. really. Mm. But one of the main things that happens in the second second season premiere is that Peter Gregory, the character dies. So they finally address it. Um, but they don't get all maudlin about it. Um, a lot, there's a lot of great jokes, mostly in the, the the main, the first one we're talking about is, uh, Peter Gregory's like right hand man, a woman, I guess, but 
the term is right hand man mm-hmm. the sexist right girl friday that's yeah. what i say but that's but she's a higher like rank than that okay. like she's not his secretary or anything she's like oh, okay you know she's a uh fully active member of the company mm-hmm. as well but anyway she is trying to tell the story of um how he died which is this ridiculously complex story that happened on a safari and it keeps getting to the point where like oh a hippo got loose in their camp and so the other two was like oh and the hippo got him no then this happened and this happened is like <laughs> oh so he got hit by a stray bullet no <laughs> it's this long story of telling how he died uh, which is very funny and then his actual funeral is also funny because it's a play on I and mean, it's a joke on the fact that this is silicon valley and literally like one of the there's like a series of eulogizers and one of them has a powerpoint presentation on like his on his That's life funny. um and um then what like one of them mentions like uh uh it's a, it's like a montage of the, all these eulogies and one says like uh peter was reluctant to um to fund us at first because he was disappointed with his experience with Snapchat and, but luckily, you know, he saw something in us and the next guy is clearly from Snapchat and makes his entire eulogy about like, here's how he'd want to be remembered. Courageous, kind, and not disappointed in Snapchat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it fit all that stuff, all this, all that goofy comedy into the episode. It was a, it was a home run. It was an A plus. I don't give out A pluses, but it was an A plus of a series season premiere. The complex death thing does remind me of uh, one of my favorite moments from the uh, the the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast of Hudson and Gaines, which actually put out an episode a few months ago. Did you notice that? No, I don't think I still subscribe. Yeah. I got to listen to that. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know it's, how they did it. Seven years. Yeah, Mike Hudson, doesn't he live in New York now or something like that or uh, elsewhere anyway? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so uh, in which and of course, Craig Gaines uh, delivers stuff so uh, deadpan. Yeah. We haven't talked about this in a long time. People seek out Hudson and Gaines. Yeah, I think it is still available to, to subscribe. I think it wasn't. And then I talked a lot about it on, on Twitter and Facebook. And then Craig's like, Hey, I, thanks for talking about us. Uh, I'll set the feedback up. Um, that's awesome. And so, uh, but yeah, in which Craig talks about how there was a prank played on this nerdy little kid where somebody put a scorpion in his, uh, in his locker and he opened it up, got frightened. And as he backed away, like he, he, uh, stumbled into like, uh, into the kitchen and like fell into a bunch of forks. And then as he ran away, uh, he stumbled again into like the boiler room and, and, uh, put his hands on the boiler and he burned his hands. And as he ran away, he then walked into the, uh, the school bowl, <laughs> the school bowling alley and then trips and, uh, the, the lanes had been recently scrubbed. So they were super slick. So he, he slipped and goes, uh, flying all the way down the lane <laughs> into the pins. And then there's a pause and Craig's like, and yes, if you must know, it was a strike <laughs> and it was just, and I always thought it was hilarious. But anyway, um, whenever I see the word Oaxacan, I think of <laughs> the wacky Oaxacan, the, the Mexican restaurant is called the wacky Oaxacan and yeah. Craig's in the middle of telling a story that, Incidentally, takes place at the Wacky Rock, and yeah, and is it Micah, the producer? Yeah, clicks in and says, "That's how you pronounce that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that uh, was yeah. a great show. Check out Hudson and Gaines, please. All do. Right. Um, uh, okay, you watched so. uh, you watched the thing that I watched one episode of. Yeah, uh, I get. Yeah, well, obviously, we have to end with Amazing Race, so I guess I'll, yeah, I exactly. was gonna I was gonna try and end with this, uh, but I'll start with it. Yeah, I watched all of Daredevil. 
Um, and I enjoyed it tremendously in a lot of ways. I think the acting is solid. I really enjoy the action in episode two. I haven't seen Old Boy, but apparently there's an action sequence that is inspired by Old Boy. Yeah, and I watched it, it. I didn't see the episode. I just watched it on you. Watched the fight on YouTube. It's pretty great. It's pretty. Yeah, it's fantastic. I really like it. And actually, like because it's all that one shot thing, and 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 there's a nice build to it. When he finally like has dispatched all of the uh, Russian mobsters and stuff, and then he goes into the room, and you just hear him say to the kid, like, I know you're scared. You don't need to be mm. scared. I'm going to... I think like, the YouTube thing might have cut off before that. It's emotional in that moment, because you realize how much he did to get this kid to safety. It's a really nice moment. Um, but yeah, so there's so much I like about it. I like the darkness of it. I think it fits in well with the... Uh, with the world of Marvel, they do occasionally make reference to like the Battle of New York and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And the incident, the incident, as they call it, and so um, and little things like what with so much ruin in New York after that, somebody like the Kingpin or Wilson Fisk. Pardon me, I don't think they refer to him as the Kingpin in the film, in the in the show. Um, the idea that it's like, wow, look at all this uh, bad stuff. I think I can use this and mm-hmm. really, you know, go up in the ranks. Um, and I will say that my favorite part of the series, as one would expect, is the Kingpin played ri- wonderfully by Vincent D'Onofrio. This may be this might be my favorite performance of his. He manages to really, you know, that you have a certain idea of like what a character is, and especially like if you were at read comic books, like you have a visual every time you look at every time you read them, uh, and so. Not only did he look the part, I mean, no, he's not as big as the Kingpin is. That's not possible. But, um, but like with the bald head and just the way he carries himself and the way he looks at people, he became this character. It's really astonishing. I think he's mar- I think he's great. I think if the Emmys are going to pay any attention to Netflix at all, which I know they do with House of Cards, but and and Orange is the New Black, I hope that they look past the comic book thing and see his performance because it's really great. Um, so I like that. Um, not to not to crap on anybody else. I think I think the acting is good throughout. Yeah. Um, if you like Daredevil, <clears throat> I, I only watched the first episode, but this is just more argument that you need to watch Angel. I know because it's essentially I saw your tweet. It's essentially the same show. Yeah. And it, they're both Drew Goddard. Yeah. Uh, involves in both, uh, and it's so like there are so many parallels to the, at least the first season. Like Matt Murdock is Angel and Foggy is Doyle mm-hmm. and uh, Deborah Ann Wool uh, Karen Karen is uh, Cordelia. It's pretty. I will say this, and I'm reluctant to say it because it sounds strange. I feel like I okay. I absolutely get that Daredevil's or Matt Murdock's senses are heightened, like beyond merely being blind and having to rely on sound and that sort of thing, like. The, the chemicals and stuff, uh, they don't explain how, and I'm, I think that's probably for the best. They don't explain how his heightens or his, his senses, pardon me, are even more heightened. So I get it. Like, he can basically function just as well as really anybody else. But somehow, I feel like they need to do a little bit more work in convincing me that he is blind. Because... Like you can put the sunglasses on him, you can have him tapping his cane, which I'm sure he does just for show. But it's just, I didn't believe that he was blind. Huh. I, I believed it in the pilot, but that could have been because it was so damn dark. 
on the show that yeah. it seemed like everyone was kind of blind. Yeah. And, and I, I know that sounds weird and it's a weird complaint to make and you just have to suspend your disbelief. And when it comes to like fighting, like I believe that he'll hear like the, the, you know, the whooshing sound of a fist coming his way that I, that all, I, I get all of that, but like the way in which he seems to know, like when he's jumping over a fence in an alley to like chase after a car and he's jumping on rooftops and stuff like that. It's like, I recognize that I guess you're basically using sonar, but like you have to ping like uh, is, is your movement the ping like I don't know. It's just it. I know it's weird and it's a weird thing to have a problem with, but well, I can I it, can wouldn't it make the show a little wouldn't it slow the show down a little bit if you had to like explain everything like that? I don't even like I'm not saying explain it uh, verbally, but even just like having little moments like it could it could be just. A, like a certain kind of movement that he makes that one wouldn't necessarily make instinctively in a scene, in an action sequence or a chase sequence or something like that. And like, even just an acknowledgement that he, that while his senses are heightened, that even that will uh, to the point that he's j- really just no different than you and me, um, that it's still different, that he still has to do things in a different way. It could, it could be just, you know, something like you don't have to necessarily even slow down the action. Just have him do something a little bit differently. Shoot it maybe a little bit differently. Have him maybe like maybe even just slip a little bit from time to time. Um, like anytime he gets the shit beat out of him, which is regularly, it always just seems more like he's outmatched than he's blind, which is, which is fine. But I feel like this, like there need to be, I think more stakes to him being blind that right now there are no stakes beyond anybody who just decides to be, he's basically Batman right now. And it's the same level of stakes as being Batman. And so, um, so I don't know. It's just a weird thing where, and it's, I don't, I don't blame it on Charlie Cox. I think he's doing a fine job, but I feel like they need to just throw in even like three or four things throughout the entire season. And they not verbal cues or anything like that. Just the slightest acknowledgement that yes, things are, not necessarily harder, but different for him. So that was all I'm thinking. And I, I spent too long talking about it because I still enjoyed the series a lot. Right. So Maybe anyway, I'll finish it. Sorry about that. Before we get to Amazing Race. Okay. Which I actually don't have that much to say about this week. Uh, there's something we normally we just talk about movies and TV here. But I want to talk about an album. Okay. That I listen to. Well, okay. First, there's a comic series that I guess is 12 issue run that it's you can buy as a uh, as one paperback which i have not read mm-hmm. called the life and times of scrooge mcduck okay and it's the story of the life of scrooge mcduck yeah and i guess on his own not as a tie-in on his own um musician named tuomas holopinen who i know being from the band nightwish um made, made an album like a, essentially a soundtrack album for the comic book mm-hmm it's amazing and beautiful and it makes you really want to read the book. Uh, and I think you would like it Okay, a lot. It's not metal. It's a, it's a guy, he's a metal guy, but it's not a metal album. Okay. Sounds um, good. I think, I, th- I think you would like it. I want to, I really want to read. If there's anyone out there who has read the life and times of Scrooge McDuck comment and let me know if it's worth reading. Cause I don't know anything about it. Uh, and I'm kind of happy just having the album, Hmm. Uh, which you can listen to on Spotify. But, okay, what do you have to say about Amazing Race? Well, I've got things to say about other shows as well. Oh, I thought you were just... No, no, no. I thought you just had the two things. I've got Gotham, Community, and Survivor, and I don't have much to say. Let's motor through, because we do have a guest coming in a few minutes. Uh, Gotham is all well and good. It's fine, whatever. It's it's, it's as good as it 
as it is. No, it's not as good as it can be. One thing that gets me is like, so they created the character of Fish Mooney played by Jada Pinkett. They created that character for the show. That's fine. And she's doing fine work, but they're spending more time on her. It's like they're spending time trying to convince us that she deserves screen time, which uh, gets a little tiresome after a while. But whatever. That's fine. Um, It's it's a it was a perfectly fine episode. I don't know. I don't have much to say. Survivor continues and it's a lot of fun to watch. It's it's a pretty good season. There's some people that I'm definitely rooting for. One of the, my favorite moments of the season happened in which there's like a crazy tribal council and then there's a guy whose name is also Tyler. Um, and, you know, when people give their votes, they hold up who they're voting for and they say something to the camera. And he like he has immunity. He's not in danger. His he's his alliance is in power. Everything's fine. But a lot of crazy stuff happens and stuff that clearly like he and a number of other people were not aware was going to happen. So when he goes up and just holds up his vote and goes and says very deadpan, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) And I thought it was very funny. But anyway, so I enjoyed Survivor a lot. All right. Community. New episode came up, came out last night or I guess early this morning, if you want to look at it that way. Um, I do. Thank you. Uh, I like to know where you're coming from, Dave. <laughs> I don't know what community is doing this season, but I like it a lot. They really seem to be Dan Harmon really seems to be digging into some ideas and some topics, whether it be sexuality and the way that it can be exploited by all parties. Um, bullying. He seems to have delved into that. And then this episode was very timely, but I also like how how there was no obvious conclusion to be drawn from it, where uh, essentially, just to give you, a, you David, a little bit mm-hmm. of context, so it turns out that, so they get a, the school gets hacked, and uh, basically there's a comedian that's going to go on who says very offensive things about Jews and blacks, uh, and they get they get hacked and they say like hey unless like if you, unless you cancel his appearance then we're going to hack into everybody's into the email of like the the primary group and the faculty and we're going to release them for everybody to see and so the group first off they're like they go to the dean and say like why did you book that comedian he's horrible <laughs> like we'd be protesting anyway and uh and he's just like well he came cheap you know uh but anyway but they make they take this stand of like no we we will you know whether we like him or not like we we can't have somebody bullying us into silence and and that sort of thing or bullying him into silence um wow. and so so the emails are released and they basically they and everyone else reads what every what they've been saying about each other in email. And it's very funny. But you actually see like, oh, there's a real consequence to this. And then he goes on and his humor is horrible. And he's an and he's an, a terrible comedian, a terrible person. And what's more is as he goes on, there's really only one member of the audience uh, except for the group themselves. And then the hackers put out a thing saying if the school like if the school doesn't do anything that includes the student body if they don't do anything about this we'll release their emails as well and then you just get a stampede of of people coming in to pull him off the stage and all that and so there's like a lot going on there yeah and it's really awesome. great and what i like is that there at the end is they're sitting around their table they they keep trying to come up with like what did we learn because he his speech was horrible 
but does that mean it should be silenced? Well, not necessarily, but now we all hate each other. So there's a lot going on there. And I like, it seems that moving to Yahoo has allowed Dan Harmon to really uh, sink his teeth into some stuff. And I'm really liking it. That sounds um, really good. It's <clears throat> good stuff going on there. Um, and, le- and so that's it for me. So Amazing Race. Well, I forgot I rewatched Gun Crazy. Gun Crazy is great. Everyone should watch it. Absolutely. Um, how, about, with that. how about Amazing Race? How about it, huh? Going to be two, a two-hour episode tomorrow. I like that. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it is a bummer that uh, I don't have much to say except that, you know, it's a bummer, the team that left, because it was the only, like, blind date team that actually seems to have, like, romantic uh, yeah. But it, possibilities. Yeah, but it felt like kind of an anticlimactic episode, and I feel like I've always thought the editing team behind The Amazing Race was great, but I feel like there were opportunities here to make this a little more... Uh, pulse pounding or whatever. Yeah, this one they seem to really be wanting to focus on like relationships and interaction than the actual race aspect. Yeah, I think the, I mean, I'm okay with the relationship focus, but the race has to come first. I think so too. That's the that's the engine. Yeah, and so that's what's that's what's driving this boat. Yeah, they all you know they got somewhere to be. Um, but yeah, and so uh, Haley and Blair seem to. It's weird. They, they're bonding over how much they don't like each other, which is an odd. <laughs> Isn't that is strange? Yeah. Um, but it's a. Uh, the season wound up being like, much to my surprise, there's a solid three or four teams that I'm that I'm fine with winning. And usually, and certainly at the beginning of this season, I did not think that was going to be the case. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. Most most chiefly, uh, Tyler and Laura, who are just an absolute delight every time I see them. They're the Olympians. No, no, no. The Olympians are pretty good, too. No, Tyler and Laura, they're a blind date couple, and they're the ones who just, like, he's the <laughs> oh, one who left. Left their fanny yeah, pack. And, and she had, like, no problem with yeah, it at all. Like, they just it's, had fun. It's crazy. Like, they seem like they should be dating or that, they are, that they've been married for years, but they just met on the race, and I think they acknowledge there's no romantic thing. So maybe by just approaching, it's like, hey, we're friends. Uh-huh. You know, that's fine. So... Yeah, I enjoy them. They're kind of the ones I'm rooting for. But if but there's a number of others that if they won, I'd be fine with. Jen made a comment that what with was it Jeff and Jackie? I know it was two J's. Okay, and it wasn't Jenny and Jelani. Right. There's a different. Yeah. Uh, that with them leaving, Jen said, "I really hope that at the end of the season they do like a catching up with, like especially with them because they actually do seem like they could have a romantic relationship." Yeah. Um, and you know what? I hope they do, David. I hope they do too. So, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. I also, I also want to visit Monaco. It looks it looks beautiful. Yeah, gotta be rich. Gotta they be even, rich. They don't even let you in unless you can show them a hundred thousand dollars. Oh that's, my that's gosh, what I, that's what I hear. In cash, you gotta have a briefcase. Yeah, and the cost of the briefcase does not go toward the hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um. All right, that's it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.